you would take your Bibles and open up to Proverbs chapter 7. Proverbs chapter 7. The last few weeks, we've had two different messages thinking about the issue of sexual sin and adultery. And I've had a few conversations with people, people saying things like, wow, you're brave to, to touch on those kinds of things. I, I don't hear people preaching on these kinds of things. And, and I have to simply say, I'm not picking what we're talking about. We're working through the book of Proverbs. That was just what was there. And, and I hope that I'm always brave enough to simply say, this is what God says. I hope that we're always that brave. We're brave enough to say, this is what God says about these things. And, and I'm not preaching these things because it's a hobby horse of mine. I'm preaching them because this is what God wants us to hear as working through this passage. And what's interesting is we're coming to another passage that covers a similar issue again. Then in Proverbs chapter 7, we once again find a warning from Solomon to his son about the issue of, of sexual temptation and adultery. And this is actually the, the fourth time already in this introduction in which this issue has come up. Now, certainly each time it's come up, there's been a, a slightly different nuance, a slightly different framework to this. But I think it is a reminder that this is important, especially for young men, for those who are growing up. As Solomon's writing to a young man preparing to enter into his adult phase of life, one of the things that is very dangerous for him and one of the things he needs to make sure he guards himself against is sexual temptation and sexual sin. And yet, in this chapter, it does seem that there's at least a broader implication to temptation more broadly. And I say that for a couple of reasons. One is, in Scripture, often unfaithfulness to the Lord is described in language of being unfaithful to your spouse. Because there's a failure to honor the commitment that you have. And so God can refer to his people who have sinned against them as adulterers or adulteresses. And as well, the way that temptation is described in this passage is very similar to what we see temptation being described in other ways. And so while I think we are going to focus on the issue specifically of adultery, I want to make some broader applications at times as well to how temptation works and how we need to guard ourselves more broadly against temptation. So let's look now at Proverbs chapter 7. In the first five verses of Proverbs 7, there is a similar refrain that we see, an introduction in which, again, Solomon is asking for his son to heed what he says. My son, keep my words and treasure or, or store up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. And here it's a, it's a good reminder, something that we've seen over and over again in the book of Proverbs, that that commandments and precepts and instructions are not intended to be killjoys. They're not intended to say, you want to have a good life? Well, too bad. Instead, they're designed to say, you want to have a good life? Then do this. This is what will lead to life. Because as he's going to point out once again in this, in this chapter, the opposite will lead to death. The opposite will lead to destruction. It might seem appealing, but ultimately it will not provide life. It's my commandments that will allow you to live. And keep my teaching 
as the apple of your eye. Your pupil. A very important and very delicate uh, part of your body, one in which you take a lot of precautions to protect. Someone begins to try to, to poke you in the eye. It's almost impossible to let them do it without trying to pull away or blinking or something like that. If you, if you wear contacts, the first time you start putting contacts in your eyes, your body doesn't want to let you do it. Because there's a natural sense of saying, I need to protect this. It's precious. And Solomon says, this is what you need to think about when you think about my instruction and my commandments. They are valuable. They are precious. Make sure that you guard them. Verse 3, bind them on your fingers. And it's hard to know exactly what's going on there. There's probably at least two ideas that would come to mind. Uh, one would be uh, to help you remember. Think about tying a string around your finger. Now, we don't do that anymore because what do we do now? Well, we just put you know, an alarm on our phone or something like that to remind us. But the idea is, I'll see this and I'll say, oh yeah. Or potentially not just an occasional reminder. It might actually be an emphasis, and this is probably, I think, more what's going on here, of a, a continual reminder. Because we do a lot with our hands. It's hard not to see our hands. They're there all the time. And whenever we're doing something, our hands get involved in it. And Solomon's saying, whenever you're acting, whenever you're living, whenever you're functioning, I want you to keep my commandments and my instructions in mind. I want you to bring them once again to the forefront of your thinking as you live your life. The second part of verse 3, not just externally, not just in what you do, but internalize them. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Memorize these things. That your actions begin with your desires. And so transform your desires to line up with what God has said in his word. So that then you will live out what he has called you to do. Verse 4, say to wisdom, you are my sister. Now, now sister there could simply mean a, a, a close relative. But, but I think in light of what he's going to be talking about in this chapter, in a sense, uh, he's saying here, you're, you're my bride. That is language that's used in Scripture. Song of Solomon, several different times, uses that kind of language to, to talk about his bride. You are my sister. And say to it is, is almost, we can almost picture it as a, a declaration, a kind of wedding vow. I take you to be my covenant companion. And Solomon says, you need wisdom to be like that for you. Because he's going to warn, warn about someone else who's going to try to come in and act as if they are actually this lover. But if you're going to guard yourself against that, you need wisdom to be your intimate companion. That's what he says in the next part of the verse. Call understanding your intimate friend. Make this commitment to what God has said in his word. Don't keep yourself aloof. Because he's actually going to be warning about someone here a little bit later that's described as a naive or gullible person. And in Proverbs, the naive person or the simple person or the gullible person is the person who has not committed to God. The person who has not committed to God's wisdom and God's ways. And Solomon's basically saying, 
Make that commitment. In common parlance, put, put a ring on that finger. Don't keep your options open. Don't say, maybe something better will come along. Recognize this is it. And so I am making my commitment to follow what God has said. I am making wisdom my sister, my wife, and calling understanding my intimate friend. Why? Verse 5. That they may keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. So we've said several times in the book of Proverbs that this foreigner or this adulteress is an outside woman, a strange woman, someone who's not your actual wife. Someone outside of the bounds of marriage. You need to be guarded from that because she has smooth and flattering speech. And in the rest of the chapter, he's going to begin to to demonstrate that. And he does so by by describing something that, that maybe he actually saw. Maybe he saw something like this and, and kind of developed it in some way. Or potentially this is, is just a hypothetical that is true to life. I think he probably did see this kind of thing happen at different times. In which he describes this foreign woman, this strange woman, this outside woman, and her flattering words, her smooth speech, and how she pulls people away. The kind of speech that Solomon wants to warn his son about and keep his son from. So in verses 6 to 9, we kind of have the scene laid out. And then verses 10 to 13, we have the characterization of this woman. What is she like? 6 to 9, the scene. For at the window of my house, I looked out through my lattice. And so here, picture as if Solomon's in his house. The way that these houses were, were set up, most likely this would have been a second story because you didn't have windows on, on the first floor uh, to, to keep people out that don't need to, to be in. But the second floor, you often have windows and then the lattice is, is maybe some type of shutter, maybe something to, to allow air in, but make it so that it's maybe not easy to be seen. And so the idea is Solomon's able to look out, but maybe people don't see he's watching. So he's looking out through his lattice and he saw among the naive and discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense. The language he uses there that, that he discerned is pointing to the, the wisdom that he's employing. He, he's not just willy-nilly looking around and, and, and just happening to be curious. He, he's actually seeking to learn and he's gaining insight. He's discerning something. He sees what's happening and he's drawing out wisdom from it. And what is it that he sees? He sees someone who is naive, simple, gullible. Someone who has refused or at least failed to make a commitment to God and wisdom and therefore is open to someone else coming along. And is open to listening to someone else's instruction and someone else's commands and someone else's thinking. And he discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense. Now, the youths and the naive are actually the, the people that we saw several weeks back, several months back, at the very beginning of Proverbs 1. Proverbs 1 was written to give to the naive cunning and to the youths knowledge and, and discernment. And here we find someone who should have looked to his God's commands given through godly parents. 
and gained cunning and gained insight and wisdom, but has failed to do that. And so as a naive youth, and what's he doing? Well, he lacks sense. This is someone who who does not have the, the proper thinking in place. And he is passing through the street near her corner, and he takes the way to her, her house. It seems as if he's perhaps unaware of where he is. At a minimum, he's not being cautious. He's not being careful. He's haphazardly walking around. He's not looking for her, but he certainly puts himself in a position in which he can be caught by her. And when is this happening? Verse 9, in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. And there's four descriptions that are basically saying, more or less at dusk, in darkness. And we might say, he's in the wrong place at the wrong time. Now, I, sometimes you, people give that kind of language of saying, you know what? It's not his fault. You may have followed recently a story in college basketball about one of the best players in college basketball this year who's under uh, scrutiny uh, because uh, there was someone murdered. And he apparently was there at the location, maybe even brought the gun to the person who did that. And one of the responses from the school was basically, you know, wrong place, wrong time. Now, I'm not trying to to say anything about that young man. But I do want us to see from Proverbs, there's a sense in which that's not an excuse. That you should realize, I should not be in the wrong place at the wrong time. I should be alert. I should be aware. I should be thinking about what I'm doing and be careful about where I am. Because this man has put himself right into, in a sense, the web of the adulteress. We begin to find her in verse 10. And behold, all of a sudden, he's there just aimlessly wandering around and she pops up. A woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. Dressed as a harlot doesn't really describe what that would be. Uh, if you compare it to the description uh, of uh, Tamar in, in Genesis, uh, it seems that in that culture, maybe one of the ways that they would dress is by wearing a veil. Um, but, but clearly, the way she's dressed indicates she's, she's someone who's looking for sexual relations. And I pointed this out last week. I think it's an important reminder for us that I think we do communicate by the way we dress. And so it's not something that we can just kind of dismiss. It is something we need to think about. She's communicating something by how she dresses here. She's communicating that she is acting like a harlot or a prostitute. And yet she is cunning of heart. She is wily and crafty. Now, how is Solomon able to know that? Can Solomon look at her heart? No, we, we can't see the heart. And yet scripture would tell us, even though we can't see the heart, we can see the fruit. And what comes from a man comes from our hearts. What comes from a woman comes from our hearts. And so I think Solomon's able to say she has a cunning, wily, crafty heart because he's observing how she lives. 
He's recognizing she's someone who ultimately does not care for others. She's only there to indulge her own sensual desires. And how she described, she is boisterous and rebellious. Boisterous, you might have a translation that says unruly. An indication seems to be uh, something on the line of, of loud noise and a lot of movement. Is the opposite of what Peter describes in 1 Peter 3 as the adornment of a godly woman. Her beauty is a gentle and quiet spirit. And this woman is boisterous. And she is rebellious. She is defiant. She is pushing back against the proper conduct of society. She is seeking to subvert the proper order of the community. Her feet do not remain at home. As one commentator put it, she has a house, but in a sense she doesn't have a home. And again, this is the opposite of what Paul describes in Titus 2 as a kind of godly young woman. What's her focus supposed to be? Working at home. There's an orientation toward her home. There's a commitment to her family. And this woman does not have that. She's not concerned about her home. She's always out and about, verse 12. She's now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner. The day by lurks is, is she's lying in wait, ready to ambush. She, she is like a hunter looking for her prey. And all these things, Solomon in his wisdom and insight is able to look at and discern. But this fool, this naive person, this simple gullible person misses all of these things. And so he is now ready to be ambushed by her. And what happens? Well, she, she, she seizes him and kisses him. And with a brazen face, she, she says to him, sorry, I'm having trouble with my shh, and she's there, right? Try that again. So she, she suddenly grabs him and kisses him. And then it's described here, as a brazen face. It's a shameless face. And I think it's probably described this way because what she begins to say is basically shameless lies. Brazen lies. She she is deceiving this young man. And what does she say to him? And in verses 14 to, to 20, we find her speech. And in this speech, I think we can see in many ways how temptation often lures us. How temptation works in our life. First, temptation begins by by trying to downplay how bad the sin is and how seriously God might take it. Verse 14, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I have paid my vows. The peace offering uh, the word that's used there is, is a kind of fellowship offering. Really, it was designed to, to indicate fellowship between the person and God, and then you were actually to take the meat from that and have a meal with others. And so there was a, a communal kind of aspect to this. Now, now, there's some debate, and it's hard to, I think, know definitively, is, is this woman described as an Israelite? And so the, the sacrifice that she's making would be a sacrifice that would fit within the, the Judaic 
Mosaic system, or is she actually described as a foreigner, a Canaanite? And, and if so, potentially she's even a, a kind of temple prostitute, a temple harlot. Because in the Canaanite worship, one of the things they would do was have sexual relations in connection with their sacrifices. I don't know that I can say definitively, but I will say the fact that, that she is saying, I did these sacrifices and then I'm going to sin, I don't think would preclude her being an Israelite. Because if you look at how the nation of Israel worked, very often their thought was, we did our sacrifices, we're all good. Hey, we did the rituals. And so now it really doesn't matter if we follow everything else God said in the law. Because we're fine. As well, some people have indicated, she might be pointing out, I was able to do the temple sacrifices, which means I'm I'm in a clean state. The kind of state in which I could have sexual relations. But it does seem on some level, she's saying, you know what, what we're doing is actually good. It is, it is religious. It's not something that, that God or the gods would look down on. It's something that they would not think is that bad. In a sense, it's not that different than Satan coming to Eve and saying, you can't eat of all the trees of the garden? I mean, is God really that big of a stickler? Is God really that concerned about these things? Why would God make such a big deal about this? You know what? We can always just ask forgiveness later. How harmful could it really be? And sin begins to deceive us by saying, it's really not that bad. Secondly, Sin deceives us by saying, you know what? You're exceptional. You're special. Verse 15. Therefore, I have come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly, and I have found you. You are the special one. You are the one that I've chosen. And actually the language there, to seek your presence earnestly, the idea of seeking your, your face. And there might be some kind of indication of, you know what? When I saw you, I knew you were the one. Now the way that Solomon's already described this woman, it's pretty clear, she's not that picky. She's going all over the place. He just happened to be there. And yet, what does she say to him? You know what? You're special. Again, not that much different than Satan telling Eve, you know what? You'll be like gods, knowing good and evil. Or perhaps that man in your workplace who says, man, your husband is lucky to have someone like you. I hope he appreciates you as much as I would. Or that woman who says, you know what, this is fine because we love each other, and so that makes this okay. It's okay. We're exceptional. The rules don't apply to us. Or perhaps in your own mind, as you hear the temptation coming and you think, you know what, 
you really deserve this. You've done a pretty good job, and it's okay to indulge this once. You deserve this. After all, everyone else seems to be able to do this. So sin lies to us in saying, you are special, you are exceptional. And then, sin tells us, just imagine how good it will be. Verse 16. I have spread my couch with coverings, with colored linens of Egypt. Couch there is potentially a a bed in which you could sleep, but it's also the the word that would be used to describe the the place where you sat to eat. In that culture, you would recline to eat. And as I said, there is a feast that seems to be involved in this, and probably a good feast connected to this sacrifice. And the description here of lining this, this couch with coverings is the idea of it's very comfortable. It's not hard. It's actually laid out so that it'd be soft and comfortable. And it's luxurious. Colored linens of Egypt. That, that dye was expensive. And so the fact that this, these are colored linens and they're imported. This is some of the finest material you could have. And verse 17, I have sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Bed here is potentially a cinnamon for couch, but, but certainly is more explicitly the kind of place where you would lie down and have sexual relationships. And it's an indication of wealth in many ways, because not many people actually had beds. And so this is, again, pointing to the fact that she seems to be wealthy, and this is really going to be a good experience for this young man. And, and she has given expensive perfumes that are meant to be aphrodisiacs. Myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. And what we'll be able to do, verse 18, come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses. That it is going to be delightful and pleasurable. And yet, again, we see this as a lie. Because although she is describing this as love, this is not biblical love. We see this in part because in a moment she's going to point out, I'm not going to leave you for my husband. This is just a a short fling. This is maybe just a a one-time thing, and we can just live it up. But I'm going to go back to my husband when we're done. And it's the lie that we see told over and over again in our day. That you can have physical intimacy without commitment. That you can enjoy physical union without relational and spiritual and emotional union. And so she says, think about how great it will be. Or Eve, as she looks at the fruit and says, it's good for food. It's pleasant to the eyes. It's desirable to make one wise. But again, I don't think we should limit this lie of temptation, this lie of sin, to to merely sexual sins. Temptation often tells us, just imagine how good it will feel. Think about how you'll feel after you tell that person off. Or after you just give vent to your frustration and anger. Or think about all the attention you'll get when you share this juicy bit of gossip. 
Or if you're willing to, to play ball and fudge the numbers here, think about the raise you'll get and the new position you'll be able to have and then the life you can enjoy. Just imagine how good it will be. And the final lie she gives is that you can get away with it all. Look at verse 19. For my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He's taken a bag of money with him. He's doing business. And at the full moon, he will come home. And it's hard to know exactly how long that would be. But, but some people seem to, to think, in light of the emphasis earlier on the idea of, of it being dark, that potentially the sacrifice was done in connection with the new moon. And so it's going to be a couple weeks. He's certainly not going to be home tonight. No one will know. Think about how much fun we can have, how pleasurable it will be, and you won't have to pay. You can get away with it. And again, we see she doesn't have his best interest at heart. Because she's not saying, I'll leave my husband for you. She's saying, it's just this one-time fling. Now, this should be a major red flag for this naive person. Because she doesn't care about her husband. She's not committed to him. She doesn't have her husband's best interest at heart. What would make him think that she would have his best interest at heart? But he's naive. He's gullible. And he misses all of these warning signs and thinks, yeah, we can get away with it. Or Satan telling Eve, you won't die. God won't actually punish you. No one will know. You can cover your tracks. You can get away with it. In verses 21-23, we find this gullible, naive young man bites right onto the hook. With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, the same language he warned about in verse 5. With her smooth, flattering lips, she seduces him. And suddenly, he follows her. I think, again, just as a reminder, even though the woman is certainly seen here as the aggressor, Solomon doesn't say, so it's not really his fault. He's responsible. He chooses to believe her lies. And he follows her, not realizing what's actually going on. Because he's following her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool. And there's a potential translational issue. You might have a translation that talks about a deer heading towards a noose. Uh, Certainly, either way, the indication is this is this is someone who doesn't realize they're headed to their destruction until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare. So he does not know that it will cost him his life. He's allowing his animalistic desires to make him so that he is not 
thinking, but instead is, is like a dumb animal walking right into the trap that went his life. In verse 24, Solomon comes back to warn his sons again. Now, therefore, my sons, listen to me. Don't listen to the words of the temptress. Don't listen to Satan's lies. Listen to me. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. And do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Guard your heart. As he said over and over in this book of Proverbs, that's where this starts. Don't allow your desires and your thoughts to even begin to go toward her ways. And do not stray into her paths. Be on guard. Be alert. Flee temptation. Stay on the path of wisdom. Stay on the path of God's commandments. Don't stray off into her paths. Because the consequences are dire. Many are the victims she has cast down, and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. Keep my commandments and live. Believe her lies and die. So if I could encourage us, remind us again as parents that God has given us the responsibility, and the authority to teach and command our children to do what is right. And Solomon here doesn't hesitate to emphasize, these are my commands. I don't want you dating her. I don't want you going to his house. And I'm telling you, you cannot do that. Because you are given to them to protect them, to help keep them from sin. And you cannot guarantee it, but you can try with everything that is in you to warn and to command and to urge your children and to do so repeatedly. That potentially, as we come to a passage like this, we think, really? Again, Solomon? In a sense, we should want our kids to say, I know, Dad, you've said this before. You say, I know, but I'm going to say it again because it's so important. You need to get this. Be on guard against sin because sexual sin leads to death. Don't be naive about temptation. See it for what it is. Again, if I could broaden out the application, that as we've looked at these passages over these weeks, that one danger might be in our hearts to say, yes, sexual sin is really bad. I'm glad I'm not tempted or engaging in that. But we're happy to indulge in other sins. Proverbs has warned us, sexual sin is not the only sin that leads to death. The wages of sin, period, is death. Don't go down 
that path. Guard your heart. And turn from your sin so that we can find the forgiveness through Jesus Christ.